I wonder, uh, do you want to know the future? Uh, do you want to know the future? I think all of us do to some extent or another. Uh, we all have at least a curiosity about what the future has in store. Well, one of the interesting things about the Bible is that the Bible does tell us, to some extent, what the future has in store. Uh, there is prophecy in the Bible of things which have already happened and also of things which have yet to happen. And the truth is many Christians, and in fact some non-Christians as well, can get very excited about that fact. And some can run away with themselves and study the Bible, desperately seeking to find some sort of key or clue to the future. Uh, you perhaps know people uh, who read the Bible, hold them, uh, who read the Bible with one hand and read the newspaper with the other, and they uh, try to marry the two together. And frankly, many Christians have said some nonsensical things, uh, trying to use the Bible to back up what they say and have been found to be absolutely and hopelessly wrong. Uh, because there is a danger, isn't there, for all of us, as we seek to understand from the Bible what is going to happen in the future. And that problem is pride. We all have, however deeply hidden, this problem of pride which enjoys knowing something that we think someone else doesn't. And it's all too easy uh, to delve into God's words to try and cultivate that feeling of, I know something they don't know. And that can be a very seductive uh, feeling to have as we try to understand the Bible. It's a very dangerous one because it's not primarily interested in finding out what does God say it's fundamentally concerned with feeding our own ego and our own sense of importance. And it's dangerous uh, to speculate too much about what the future has in store. Having said that, the Bible does speak of the future. And we can't just ignore what the Bible has to say about the future simply because we are uh, concerned about going too far. Uh, prayerfully and humbly, we need to seek to understand what God wants us to know. And so what I'd like to do uh, this evening, looking at these, this chapter, these chapters, is without going into too much speculation and going into too much detail, I want to see what can we know about the future, at least as far as this passage teaches us. 
what does God want us to know about the future from Zechariah chapter 12 and 13? And really, uh, you can sum it up in just four words. There's one reality, one truth that God wants us all to know about the future. And that reality is God will save Israel. God will save Israel. That is the whole point of these chapters and indeed going on into the last chapter of the book as well. God wants to make it absolutely clear that he will save Israel. He will keep the promises that he made to them. Uh, You can see that expressed most clearly in verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, Look at verse 8. It says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God's, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God says there's a day coming where he will defend Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And all the nations that seek to destroy her, God will destroy them. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that uh, throughout history, the Jewish nation, uh, the nation of Israel, has been hated and persecuted. And that runs right back almost to the beginning of time, uh, where Cain murdered Abel, uh, the seed of the devil, attacked the seed of the woman, the seed of God himself. Uh, We see it going through the Old Testament when Ishmael mocked Isaac as a baby, Uh, when Saul envied David. We see this pattern throughout history where the enemies of God hate God's people. And if we go beyond biblical times, we see the Romans and their destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In more recent times, we see Hitler's holocaust of the Jews. In more recent days, of course, we see Hamas and Hezbollah and their hatred of the Jews and their desire to destroy the Jewish states. And it's really the story of human history. The Jewish people have this unique, I'm not sure what the right words call it, uh, unique role in history, if I can put it that way, where they've been hated and despised for those, by those around them. And yet they still exist. Uh, they've been thrown out of their land many times. Uh, they've been persecuted with worse persecution than probably any nation on earth. And yet they live. And yet they continue. Because we have God's promise that he will look after his people. God will save Israel. I don't know if you noticed how God described uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, 
in these verses. Uh, Look at verse 3. God says, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. God says he'll make Israel like an inconvenient stone, a heavy stone which you want to get out of the way. Uh, Imagine you're trying to build a house, you're trying to build a road, and you've got your purposes, but there's a big, hefty stone in the way, and no matter how hard you try, you can't shift it. That's what God says Israel will be like. People will gather to remove this inconvenient stone, but they'll fail. And instead, they themselves will be cut in pieces. They will be crushed by the stone they desire to crush. Uh, look again what it says in verse, uh, uh, in verse, I didn't put the verse down, uh, uh, it's disappeared. Um, oh, in verse 2, it says, God says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, the picture is like this, that the people will come greedily to Jerusalem. Uh, They'll want to drink her dry. But God says the result will be that they'll be made drunk. Uh, They'll lose all reason. They will lose all understanding. Uh, They won't be able to follow through with their threats because they've been made drunk with their hatred of Jerusalem. Look again at verse 4. Uh, In verse 4 it says, In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the picture given is no matter what anyone tries, no matter what plot people make, no matter what force of arms they bring, they will not be able to destroy God's people. Uh, Psalm 2 puts it uh, as well as any passage of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 2 says this says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The nations of the world want to destroy God's people. But God, as it were, in heaven laughs. And he says, There is nothing you can do against my people. So that's what this passage teaches. Uh, Whatever else it teaches, God will save Israel. But there are two things uh, we need to make clear, uh, otherwise we might get confused and we might take the wrong application from that truth. The first thing we need to understand is that although God has promised to save Israel, that does not mean that great harm might not come against Israel. Uh, Again, as I said earlier, uh, 
the history of the world, or at least the history of the Jews, uh, has been a catalogue of horrific atrocities which have been done against them. Many of them you can read in the Bible, and you can read, of course, of others in the history books as well. And although God has promised to save Israel, that doesn't mean they have been protected from every pain or suffering or persecution. Uh, Hamas is doomed to failure, but we do not know what success, from their point of view, they might have in the meantime. So we can't afford to say that what is going to happen, for example, in Israel at this moment. We don't know. Yes, we have this overarching promise from God's words, but there might be very dark times in store for Israel. God can keep his promise, and yet that also be true. That's the first warning. Let's be careful lest we make wrong assumptions. There's a second warning as well. Uh, God promises to save Israel from her enemies, but we must remember that she also needs saving from herself. Israel needs saving from her enemies, but she also needs saving from herself. Uh, what do I mean? What I mean is this. Sometimes we can be tempted to look at Israel with sort of rose-tinted spectacles. And we sort of make a very black and white situation. We think Israel are the good guys, and anyone who attacks them are the bad guys. But that's a little bit too simplistic. The reason is because Israel at this moment are not just fighting against Hamas. The Bible makes clear that Israel, as a nation, is fighting against God. Uh, like all nations of this world, they are not, as a nation, bowing the knee to Christ. They rejected the Messiah 2,000 years ago, and the nation as a whole rejects him still to this day. There are Christians in Israel today who are being persecuted, uh, being persecuted by Jews because they are Christians. Uh, Israel does not just need saving physically, she needs saving spiritually as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it in the simplest uh, possible words in Romans chapter 11. Let me read the verse so I get it uh, word perfect. In Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul describes Israel like this. Uh, he says, I don't know if I can find the verse, I should have written that one down as well. Uh, in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, Concerning the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What Paul says there is, on the one hand, yes, they are God's chosen people. They were chosen when God chose Abraham thousands of years ago. But at the same time, right now, they are God's enemies. 
They are fighting against him. And we have to remember that. But wonderfully, in this passage, God doesn't just speak about saving Israel physically from her enemies. He spends far more time talking about how he will save her spiritually from her sins. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, God says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. God says that he will pour his mercy and his grace on Israel. Uh, Look again uh, in verse 10. It says, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I think that's one of the most remarkable verses in the whole Old Testament. Remember, that was written long, long, long before Christ was crucified on a cross. And yet it says, they will look on me whom they pierced. God says that Israel will see him. They will see Christ who they nailed, as it were, to a cross. And they will realize what they did. When they said crucify him, crucify him, they rejected him. They said, who is this that he should rule over us? They rejected him as their Messiah. But then God says, they will look on me whom they pierced and they will mourn as one mourns for his only son. With horror, they will realize who Christ was, who Christ is. And we're told they will respond with repentance and contrition because they realize they rejected their Messiah. Now, I will admit, uh, I don't know exactly how this will play out. That's one of uh, the biggest questions and mysteries I have uh, when looking at these things is exactly when this will happen and how it will happen in light of Christ's second coming. I don't know the details. I don't know the timing of these things. I don't need to. God does. But what does seem clear from this chapter and from what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 is that one day the nation of Israel will turn to Christ. They will acknowledge what they did to their Messiah and they will accept him. And more than that, they will receive forgiveness from God. And that's exactly what is described in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, uh, we're told what the result will be of Israel turning back to God. But lest you think uh, these verses are just about Israel, uh, they also have things to teach us today. I think most of us sitting here this evening are probably Gentiles, perhaps not all of us, but we're not Jews. Nevertheless, these words in chapter 13 apply to us as well. Uh, We haven't got time to go into the details, but again, Paul, in Romans chapter 11, makes very clear that if you're a Christian 
here this morning, this, this evening. If you're a believer in Christ, you enjoy now the blessings that Israel will enjoy then. These things that we're just about to describe and look at from Romans chapter 13, though they're not yet true of Israel as a nation and will be one day, we get to enjoy them now. We get to enjoy these wonderful privileges. So let's just look at those what is in store for Israel and what we get to enjoy now from uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. And there are three things. There are three blessings that come through repentance and faith in Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Uh, God says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. God says, one day, all Israel's sins will be washed away. Uh, All their guilt, all their shame will be completely purged. God has made a way. He has made a fountain which all their sin can be washed away in. And of course, we know, don't we, what that fountain is. That fountain is the blood of Christ that he shed for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood so that anyone who trusts in him would not need to suffer themselves. As Jesus puts it, I give my life as a ransom for many. We deserve to die for our sin. Uh, The times we rebel against God deserves punishment. But on that cross... Jesus took the punishment on himself. And in so doing, as it were, he created a fountain. A fountain that anyone who wants to can wash in. If you feel the guilt of your sin, if you feel the shame of your sin, and you want to be made new, then there has been a fountain which God has made open. We get to enjoy it today. If you're a believer, you enjoy it. If you're not a believer, you can enjoy it. And Israel will enjoy it on that day. That's the first blessing that comes through Christ and will come to Israel. Their sin will be forgiven through Christ's death on the cross when they turn to him. But there's more. Look at verse 2. Uh, It says, it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Uh, Currently, as I said, uh, Israel as a whole, though there are, of course, individual Jews who do, but the nation of Israel as a whole doesn't worship Christ. And because they don't worship Christ they must have something else in his place. Uh, We all worship someone, uh, or something. You might say, oh, I don't worship anything or anyone. You do. Uh, Look deep enough and you'll see that there is something that you revolve your life around, and that is the thing you worship. It might be yourself. It might be your career. It might be your wealth. It could be any number of things. But if it's not Christ then it's going to be some other idol. And that is the state which Israel is in right now. Uh, 
I wouldn't want to speculate what their idol is. They no doubt have many different ones in the hearts of different people. But God says one day they will turn from their idols and they'll worship the living God through Christ. And again, if you're a believer here this evening, you have been freed from your idols. We don't often describe this as a good thing. Uh, Sometimes we describe it as a bad thing. If you're a Christian, you can't do this and you can't do that. You must obey Christ. But that's not a bad thing. (laughs) That's a good thing. God has freed us from all the other idols that people in this world are slaves to. You don't need to be slave to your career. You don't need to be slave to your money. You don't need to live for these things which will not satisfy you in the end anyway. God has given us a better king. God has given us a better master. And if you're a believer here this evening, you're free. You're free to follow Christ, who is the greatest master, the greatest Lord we can have. It's not bondage to be a servant of Christ. That's freedom. It's slavery to be servant to anything or anyone else. That's the second blessing that God says he will pour out on Israel. He will free them from their idols that they worship. There's a third and last blessing as well. Look at verse 3 onwards. It says, It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. You might wonder what those verses mean, but these are uh, almost deliberately amusing verses. What God is teaching What he is telling us is that he will remove all false teaching. No longer will there be lies and falsehood taught, but instead his people will follow the truth. Uh, In Israel at this time, there were false teachers. Uh, There still are to this day. People who were leading people away from God instead of to him. But God says in that day... When they turn to him, he will remove all false teaching. So much so that the false prophets, as it were, will go into retirement. Uh, Instead of being proud of their false teaching, they'll be ashamed of it. Uh, Did you notice what it said in verse 4 and 5? It says, It shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. They won't wear the garments which the prophets, the false prophets wore. But he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Uh, it's the amusing picture of a, a man who people go up to and say, aren't you, aren't you the prophet? Aren't you the one who said all these lies? And he'll say, no, 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 that's not me. 
I'm not a prophet. I was a farmer. I've been a farmer for ages. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet. Because he'll be ashamed of what he formerly taught. Did you notice verse uh, 6? It says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Uh, to understand this, you might remember uh, the prophets of Baal in the book of Kings. How when they were crying out to Baal, their god, uh, they cut themselves with knives. And the idea was the god would see their affliction, see them cutting themselves and hear them because of their dedication to him. And these false prophets would do that. They would cut themselves, and people still do this to this day, as an act of perverse worship to their God so that he would speak to them. And the people come to these false prophets and they see the scars, the scars either on their chest or perhaps on their back, And they see the scars and they say, those scars are very unusual scars. Uh, Where did you get those scars if you're not a prophet? And the prophet will answer, oh, those with which which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In other words, I was messing around with my friends and I got these scars. You see the nonsense. But the point is to show that false teaching will become absolutely toothless. All the damage and all the harm that has been caused by false teaching in the past will be done away with. No more will it afflict Israel. And that also is true for us. We don't need to be deceived by false teaching. God has given us his words. God has given us Christ's words. We have the truth. Have you ever pondered what a wonderful gift that is? To have a light to shine in the darkness. Our society is utterly confused, isn't it? Uh, Just look at the TV, just look at the adverts, just look at the films, just look at the TV shows. People don't know what to believe anymore. Uh, our society is very much like the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and that might be presented as freedom but that's not freedom that's a nightmare when everyone does what is right in their own eyes instead God has shown us the way he has shown us his son We don't have to grope in the dark. We don't have to look within ourselves to find some sort of truth. We can look at Christ and see the way, the truth, and the life. In that sense, God has freed us from all false teaching. All we need to do is listen to him. As Christ himself said, the wise person is like a wise man who builds on the rock the person who listens to Christ's words and does what he says. And when the storms of life come, when the winds and the waves and the troubles of life hit, our house will stand firm because it's founded on a rock. That's the wonderful blessing we have in Christ. So you see, one day Israel will enjoy that for themselves. One day, they will look on Christ, whom they pierced, 
and they will turn to him in repentance and in faith. God will wash away all their sins. He will remove all the idols out of the land and he will take away all false teaching forever. In the meantime, we get to enjoy those blessings ourselves. If you're a believer, your sin is forgiven. It's washed away in that fountain of, God's, of Christ's blood. You will never spend a single millisecond in hell because your sin is washed away by Christ if you're trusting in him. You don't have to serve all the idols of this world. You've got a better master now, a master who loves you and cares for you and will never lead you down a wrong path. And you don't need to believe the lies that people teach around you. You have the truth. You have a light to guide you when things get dark. That's the wonderful blessings we enjoy and Israel will enjoy one day. And with those thoughts, I've chosen as our final hymn, number 198. 198. I don't think I could really pick uh, another hymn given what we've read. It's 198. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So let's close by singing one of 198.